Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I want to talk about some of the rides and attractions that I typically skip. And there's a lot of reasons why I skip them, and I'll explain kind of what my rationale is for skipping some of these. But let me start by telling a little story. When I was growing up, I realized I had a lot of problem with um, motion. And it can be small motions, big motions, but the things where things get a little out of sync. If you're you know, going down a hill, or you're uh, in an airplane and it drops, or uh, you know, any of those types of things. Roller coasters, certainly, I, I realized very early on that I got... Not only do I get a little anxious in an enclosed space, but as soon as I can see the drop and I know that it's going to be uncomfortable for me, it throws me off. So I've known that pretty much my whole life. So for the most part, I've skipped roller coasters. Now that's not to say I haven't tried them. Many of the roller coasters in the Magic Kingdom I have tried at least once, many, I wouldn't say all, but I've tried them so I can see what that was all about. And I've, I've given it a fair shake over the years. And I had a girlfriend at one time who used to try to drag me onto these different things and I had a lot of um, nervous moments because I knew I wasn't going to feel so well. And it's, like I said, it's beyond roller coasters. It's just some certain specific motions that get me. And I extend that out into, in a, in a vehicle, like a, a ride vehicle that's, uh, you know, like an enclosed space, like a motion simulator. Those I can generally do better with because the whole room is moving. It's not just me moving. Unless the screen has some disorienting factor in it. And it could be that the screen is just distorted a little bit. It could be that there's a fast motion that doesn't match with what I'm feeling personally. And so it throws me off. So I have to be really careful with motion simulators too, uh, just because of that. Sometimes they're fine. Um, I used to do okay in the old Star Tours. Generally, I did okay with it. Um, haven't tried the new one just because I don't know. When Body Wars was there, I couldn't do Body Wars. Um, it was one of those things where it just it bothered me a lot. It was too much motion in a couple of spots where it just it bothered me. You know, those types of mo- fast motions where things are happening, they always throw me off. It's really weird, but that's who I am, and I know that. And I had a friend tell me one time, hey, you know, you just pop one of these Dramamines or one of these things that helps with the uh, inner ear, and it should be fine. And I've tried that, and yeah, it works better, but I think the anxiousness that goes along with it still affects me. So I skip roller coasters. And here's the thing about that. When you skip roller coasters, you miss out on some of the storyline. Now, in a lot of places where you go to a, you go to a, a theme park or some uh, amusement park or something where you've got these roller coasters that have no storyline they're telling. It's just a roller coaster. You stand in line, you ride the roller coaster, you get off. Those I have no interest in because they're not telling a story. But the ones that tell a compelling storyline that give you something meaty to hang on to or tell the story as you're going through the queue, those are the ones that intrigue me. And I, I actually kind of like going through some of those cues. And the Imagineers have always been, traditionally, really good at storytelling, so it's fun to stand in the queue. And what I used to do when I was in, say, high school or college, I used to get in line with a friend. We'd go through the queue, we'd enjoy it, and then I'd essentially take the chicken exit, leave, and not go on the attraction. 
And so that's the way I chose to, to work things. And that way I got to experience the immersiveness of the ride without having to have the roller coaster event, right? So it kind of worked for me. And that's kind of my story when I think about how I react to roller coasters. That's the thing. So when I talk about attractions that I skip and I say roller coasters, it's kind of a fine line because I say I skip them, but I still enjoy the immersiveness sometimes or the camaraderie of standing in line with someone and just hanging out and we tell stories and we have fun while we're waiting. FastPass changed that because now you don't have to wait in the line or at least in the past, you didn't have to wait in the line to actually go through and, uh, and see the attraction and they take you around some of the immersive story points, it changes the story. So it's different. And I kind of go, oh, well, all right, um, do I want to stand in this line with you? No, I'm not going to even get a fast pass for it because it's not worth it. So I would uh, occasionally, uh, even you know, with my kids, when they liked roller coasters, I would take them and we, I would stand in line with them sometimes. But if I got them a fast pass, I would just say, see ya and let them go. Or they'd go with my wife or whatever. And so that's the way it kind of, it kind of worked out for me. I just, I have this problem with it and I can't, I just can't do the motion. So it's, it's always been weird to me the way these things worked, you know, with all the way they've changed the cues. And now as I look at it, with the way they're doing some storyline elements, so I'll take um, Rise of the Resistance as an example. I haven't been on it yet, but I really would like to go on it because there's an immersive story that they're telling to get you there. And I'm willing to go on it. The part that gets me is at the end, there's like the... 45 second drop where you're pulling away from this from the uh, uh, the first order um, ship and you're in a free fall and from what people tell me it's very roller coaster like and I know I will have a problem with it and I know psychologically just knowing that will cause me more issues and I'll have some some issues with it I want to try it though I'm willing to give it a shot for one time just to see how it goes but the question is how do I do it do I want to spend the $15 to do it to go to lightning lane or do I want to just go in the standby queue and just wait it out and see what happens, wait for a couple of hours to, to see it? You know, and then for me, will the anxiousness build up for that couple of hours while I'm standing in line? If I'm with someone else, maybe not. If I'm by myself, I really don't know. It's weird. It's weird sometimes when I think about how my psychology works when it comes to these, uh, these motion simulators. But as I said, it sounds like fun. And I think the immersive storyline, even though I don't really care for this, the uh, sequel trilogy, I... I'm still willing to check it out because it looks really cool. Some of the technology they use, some of the storytelling elements, some of the way they, they tell the story, and the immersiveness of it all makes it seem like it's worthwhile. So I'm willing to give that a shot. Now, on the other hand, uh, I understand that Guardians of the Galaxy is going to have some sort of immersiveness to it to tell a story. Guardians of the Galaxy is primarily a roller coaster. It's not just one drop at the end. It's primarily a roller coaster, but they're supposed to be telling a really com uh, comprehensive story from everything I've read. The question is... Would I be willing to stand in line to not ride the roller coaster part? And I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm going to have to wait and see what the videos look like when people start talking about it and make a decision about what, what's right for me. The great part about Disney for me was always about the fact that you could go. It's a theme park. Everything about it is themed. There's, a, there's an immersiveness and a storytelling nature to all of it where I don't feel like I have to ride the roller coasters. I don't feel like I have to ride Big Thunder Mountain or Space Mountain or Expedition Everest. I never felt like that. I feel like I can go and I can enjoy myself. And as my kids got big enough to ride on their own, I could just let them go on those attractions. Have fun. I'll wait for you at the end. And sometimes waiting at the end is more fun than actually riding on the attraction anyway. Uh, that's just been my experience in life. So I look at it and I say, okay, so roller coasters are pretty much out for me. And I, I just can't ride them. And that's the way things work. Now, beyond roller coasters and these motion simulators, 
you, know, you have to think about what else is, is out there. Oh, and I should say that even the kiddie roller coasters, you know, the Goofy's Barnstormer or uh, the Great Goofini, whatever they call it now, um, or uh, some of these other smaller coasters, uh, the uh, Slinky Dog Dash, I can't do those either. It's the same problem. Even though it's a short ride, you know, it lasts for a minute, two minutes, I can't do it. It's just too much quick motion, and it will make me uncomfortable for the rest of the day. It's just the way it works. It's, it's sad, but that's the way it is for me. But I am more than happy to, you know, go out there and experience it and see other people doing it and kind of take it in that way, just enjoy it in that way. I've always known this about myself, so it's something I, I can live with. Now, turning to some of the other rides and attractions that I don't really care for. I did ride on Navi's River Journey at one point, and I gotta tell you, I was not a fan. Wasn't impressed. It was the most throwaway of all rides. There was nothing about it that was compelling. They weren't telling a story. Um, unless, I guess they could have been telling some of the story of Avatar. I don't know. I, you know, I lost the thread on that. Didn't like Avatar the movie. Didn't think it was in, in any way good. There was nothing about it that was compelling. And so it's kind of a weird one for me because they made an attraction around something that I don't really understand. The attraction makes no sense. It's, it's weird. Uh, that's, that's one that I, I just never really cared for. So I'll, I'll skip that one every time. I should also mention that I skipped the Flight of Passage, which is next door to it. And Flight of Passage is another one where it's, it's a motion simulator, and I've watched it. There's a movement that happens. You know, you're, you're tucked into this, this uh, flying thing, and you're going up and down and, and going side to side, and there's no way I could do that. I know that about myself, and I'm going to I, I'm have to pass. I'll probably never go on it. And that's okay. I've watched the videos, and it looks really cool, and I'm sure the technology is really amazing but I, I just can't do it myself. Similarly, I would also throw in there the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. Can't do it. It's the, it's the motion that happens. You know, if you're in it and you're, somebody's flying it, or maybe you're flying it, and you're the one who keeps control and keeps it fairly level, maybe it would be okay. I guess at the end, there's a drop that happens, but it's a motion simulator, and I don't think I'd do too well on it. Just my personal opinion. If someone else is flying it and flying it goofy, or you just let it go and it goes up and down and jerks around a lot, no way. I'll be, you know, I'll be put off for the whole day. So I realized that that one I'll never be able to do either. And I'm okay with that. I would like to go through the queue and see the interior of the Millennium Falcon. But again, is it worth it to spend the time to go through it? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I haven't decided yet. I hadn't, you know, haven't been there enough to really make that decision. I've only been to Galaxy's Edge, I think twice now. So really haven't been there very much. You know, maybe another time when I go, I'd give it a shot and see how it goes. I I'm not sure. Another one that I really don't like is Journey Into Your Imagination with Figment. Look, the original ride was so clever. It talked about imagination and really drawing on your own mind to be able to create things. And it was really cool. This one is just a cheap throwaway. Love Eric Idle as uh, the doctor who's running the, the lab. Um, and Figment, of course, is always cute. But the ride isn't enough to make it worthwhile. If there's no weight and I'm bored and it's hot out or it's raining, sure, I might ride on it. But that's one that I just try to skip because it's, it doesn't feel good. It just, you know, you come away from it going, meh. But that's one I try and skip because it's just kind of, meh. It's not really worth the effort. Another one I've never ridden on is uh, Mission Space. Mission Space, because of the way it does the motion and you're going along, Again, it's that screen that doesn't necessarily match exactly with reality. They're doing things and moving you around, and it's close. I, you know, I've heard people tell, tell me that it's, it's there, that it feels like you're actually doing the motion that they're showing. But no one gets it exactly right, and I'll, I won't take the chance to see if they get it exactly right, because if I get sick or loopy on it, 
it's a waste, right? What was the point of doing that to myself? Another one I really don't like, the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. This one, I really can't understand how it's still there and still functioning as the same attraction it was in 1971. Look, the story of the Swiss Family Robinson was a clever story, and it was written by John David Wyss, you know, taking place in, you know, the early 1800s. It tells a tale of a family that survives a, a shipwreck. And the story itself is fine. It's, you know, it's one of these heroic, epic tales that, you know, of survival that were popularized in that, in that era. The movie that Disney made was a little more fantasized and romanticized in a way, and it wasn't bad. I haven't, probably haven't watched it in more than 20 years, though, so it's probably 30 years. So it's kind of one of those things you go, yeah, it's kind of, uh, kind of forgettable in that sense. And they built an attraction around that. And you walk in and you're, you're walking up and down through the treehouse and you're seeing how the family lived when they lived in the Swiss family Robinson treehouse, right? The, the Robinsons lived there and whatever, they were, they were there. And it's cute and it's clever, but it's in no way compelling. There's nothing about it where you go, oh, that was really a great story. Uh, there's no, it's an immersiveness because you're part of the storyline in a way, but you can't touch anything, you can't do anything, there's nothing interactive. You're just looking at where they lived. Not to mention the fact that you're walking up and down, you know, 200 flights of stairs. I know it's not. But you're just walking up and down and there's nothing really to see. It's, it's the thrill of going up and down and walking on the staircase and seeing the tree that they've made there, that they've they built out of nothing. It's a fiberglass tree. And it's very cool that way that uh, Disney came up with this in, you know, like the late 1960s, found a way to make a tree that looks like a tree. But other than that, it's kind of a, kind of a throwaway. And I, I've often wondered why Disney didn't find a way to just retheme it in some way, do something different with it, make it more interesting or more compelling. You know, they could have, they could have tied it in with Tarzan, themed it in there, decided not to do that. There are other things that they probably could do to make it more compelling. Off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything, but there's got to be a way, right? You, you, you think of all the properties they own and all the properties that are out there that somebody could have probably um, lent you in some way or, you know, you could have purchased. There's got to be something you could do to make the, the tree house, keep the tree intact, but make it more interesting. You know, come up with a, a, a fantasy story and make it interesting. You're, oh, you're in Adventureland, I guess, so you can't really make it a fantasy story, but you could make, make a story of adventure that goes around it in some way. Someone could write a creative story and you could create something for it. I just don't understand why they never did. It just seems weird that that one sits there and it, it relates back to a story from the 1800s that Disney made into the movie in the 1950s that most people don't remember. It's no wonder that it's always a walk-up attraction, right? Another one I don't like, and it's in the Magic Kingdom as well, is Peter Pan. I like the story of Peter Pan. I like the attraction sort of generally, but the thing about it is no matter whether you used FastPass or whether you stood in line or whether you're using the new, um, the new Genie service, you're gonna wait in line for that one for probably a minimum of 20 minutes to half an hour, right? That's just the way it works. You're always gonna be in line for it. And the ride lasts about two minutes. And it's, you know, the ride is cute and it's neat to fly over the city of London, but it just feels like it's, it's sort of not useful in a way. You know, you kind of do these things and you're just, you're in it for such a short time. It doesn't really feel like it's worthwhile. And um, I guess, you know, that was one, it's, it's the, first attraction that Disney made where you have the overhead hanging monorail basically that's how the the uh, ride the attraction moves so in a way it's kind of compelling to think about it that way but it's just not good enough it it sort of lacks something and you fly around and it's you know it's got that sort of 1950s early 60s feel to it because it's the same attraction they put in at Disneyland so it feels like it could be a little more but 
it just it's lacking something at this point. Over in Epcot, the scene the seas with Nemo and friends. Look, I liked Finding Nemo. It was a clever film. It was very good. I like the fact that they have an aquarium at Epcot, but they decided to sort of theme it, the aquarium, to Nemo without really theming it. It's weird because you go through and you're just they're telling you some portion of the story while you're looking into the aquarium and it just feels like it's, it's lacking something. Why not do the edutainment? Why not make it interesting? Why not make it compelling? Why not be telling a story about the fish you're seeing in the, in the aquarium rather than telling a Nemo story that's sort of just silly? It, it feels like it's just like, oh, you could do more with this. It's not, it's not that good. It, it's taking away from what the nature of the aquarium itself is. And I understand why, but it just like, it's kind of sad because it would be neat if they did more with it. Another one I don't like is Turtle Talk, uh, also in the uh, Living Seas Pavilion. Look, the idea of an interactive screen where it responds, something on the screen, an animated figure on the screen responds to the audience members. Very cool. And it harkens back to the early days of Epcot when they were doing the, uh, uh, what was the name of it? I think it, was, I think it was like Astra One or something One. I can't remember what his name was now. It was this, um, it was this interactive uh, robot that was over in Communicore. And he would talk to you, and uh, you would interact with him. You'd pick up a phone and you'd speak to him. And of course, it was a person on the other end who was giving the answers, right? But it felt like you were talking to this computer. And it's the same principle in, in uh, the uh, Turtle Talk, where you're talking to, essentially, you're talking to someone on the other end, and the computer simulation can simulate the mouth and the motions to go along with whatever the person in the booth is doing. And it's kind of clever. And in the case of like Monsters, Inc., where it's very interactive and immersive and they're telling a story to go along with it, it makes sense. For the Turtle Talk, it's sort of like they're testing it and they're playing with it, but they're not actually doing anything with it. You're just, you're there and you're listening to them going, blah, 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 blah. Oh, look, I'm a turtle. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, look, there's a whale. Blah, blah. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing about it where you feel like it's compelling. They're not telling you a story. They're just answering questions and interacting with the kids. And I get that. But it just doesn't feel like it's worthwhile. Another group of attractions that I don't like are one of the ones they call the hub and spoke systems. So the Dumbos, Aladdin's Magic Carpets, or the Triceratops Spin, any of those. Not really a fan. I think they're cute. And I think it was great when my kids were little. It was something we could do and we had some fun with it and they enjoyed going up and down. But it just, it sort of lacks something. It just, you know, you go up, you go around, whatever. The carousel's more fun than that because the carousel at least, I don't know, there's some connection to it. Maybe it's because of my own history. I don't know, but there's some connection to it. You know, and I, I'll, give, I'll grant you that the Star Jets on top of the People Mover in Tomorrowland, those are okay too, in a way, because at least you can have a better view of the Magic Kingdom. So there's something to be said for that. The other ones, they just, you know, it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm going around, yay. And it just kind of sort of lacks something, and it's just one of those things that I usually tend to skip because it just doesn't feel like it's a lot of fun. High wait time, low value. That's, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, and then you may ask yourself, so Dave, what about It's a Small World? And this is the strangest attraction to me because there's no real movement from any of the characters. The song is cloying and annoying and it's kind of, an, it's kind of a nuisance in its own way. But yet, I find this one to be kind of fun. There's a certain section of it where you're going to the Pacific Islands and you hear the, hear the music playing in a different, slightly different um, way that just captures me. I don't know, maybe it, you know, it was something I noticed in high school and every time I go to it, I can kind of sit through it just to hear that music. I find it very relaxing. It's like I'm home in some way. That's the one place, and it's a small world and probably most of the Magic Kingdom where I feel the most 
at home and at ease and comfortable, it feels like, hey, I'm home. So for me, that works. Look, I don't like most of the attraction. I don't like waiting in line for it. I'm willing to wait a few minutes, but beyond that, I'm, you know, I'll just keep walking. But once in a while, when the weight is low, it's just really nice. It just has a certain feel for me that just works. So there you go. That's my sort of listing of attractions that I generally skip for my own personal reasons and some of the things that I don't like. If you tell me a really good story and you immerse me in it, that's what I really want. I love the Haunted Mansion, the Pirates of the Caribbean, rides like that, Horizons, back before they built Mission Space. Those are the attractions where they're telling you a story and it's so compelling. You sit there and you go, you feel like you're part of it. And I love that. And there's no, they're not doing any motion simulation to try and throw you off. That's not the point. They're not trying to thrill you. They're trying to engage you. And those are the ones that I really like the most. The things that tell me a story and make me feel like I'm part of the story. That's what, I, that's what I'm interested in. And you're seeing less of that to a degree with some of the new things that are being built. Though I do want to check out uh, Remy's Ratatouille adventure and I do want to check out some other things. When I have an opportunity, I will do those uh, and see what they're like. But, uh, you know, for now, it's, it'll just have to wait. Anyway, that's, uh, that's my story about attractions that I generally skip. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to read an article by Jeannie Dietrich, who wrote in June 9th, 2020, how to stand up to social injustice in both words and action. It's from a site called Spin Sucks. I was fired last week. I've never personally been fired, but the agency certainly has been. The first time was about two years into the life of the agency when a client called me to his office and said that our business just weren't suited for one another. I cried, a lot. Since then, we've certainly fired clients and we've parted ways with other clients because of economic or a change of guard or the company's been sold or once because we had a certifiably insane client. That's a great story in hindsight. But I've never been personally fired until last week. I do a lot of work with agency owners. It was one of my coaching clients, so there was no one to blame but myself. No team with whom to diagnose what went wrong or to discuss what we would do differently next time. No exit interview with the client to ask some hard questions and get some feedback. It was just him and me and a gigantic blow up. Though I don't typically help my coaching clients with tactical work, we focus our time and resources on strategy. We're in a different world right now and I'm doing everything I can to be helpful in ways that will help them not just survive this time, but thrive and make myself indispensable, of course. On Sunday night, he texted me to see if I would write an email that would go to his customers about what's happening in this world. He wanted to take a stand, and he knew I could write it better than him. Of course I said yes. I wrote it, sent it off, and told him I'd check in first thing Monday morning to make any tweaks and determine the best time to send it. What happened next was shocking at best and racist at worst. A few weeks ago, Gina Luttrell and Natalia Flores wrote an article for Spin Socks about diversity, equality, and inclusion. While it focuses mostly on how the corona, as my small child calls it, affects marginalized sectors, including the elderly, adolescents, youth, children, persons with disabilities, indigenous populations, refugees, migrants, and minorities, there's much to be said about how we as marketers and communicators can step up during this time of civil unrest. A girlfriend of mine posted a meme on Facebook that said the last six months have been the longest year ever. I was like, heck, it's only been three months. The last three months have been the longest year ever. So much has changed. Your budgets may have been reallocated or you may have been furloughed or laid off. 
Your work environment has changed. Instead of adult coworkers, you may have a seven-year-old intern who expects a book to be read to her during snack time. And there are a lot of snack times in one day. Or maybe you have a roommate who works different hours than you do. Or perhaps you're all alone in your house with no one to talk to but the dust bunnies. Your focus is probably all over the place. I know mine is. You're finding it hard to mentally understand everything that's going on and you're supposed to work on top of it, it's a lot. And I'm not just talking about the corona and watching our education and healthcare systems buckle under the pressure. I'm talking about how George Floyd was murdered and through the experience of some of the country coming together to fight against racial inequality, we quickly learned nothing much has changed since the civil rights movement in 1968. That was 52 years ago and nothing has changed. We talk about diversity and equality and inclusion, but it's all just talk, nothing has changed. Black people are still not treated as equal human beings, all because of the color of their skin. They're murdered for doing things we take for granted, some even while they sleep soundly in their own homes. It's sickening and it's disheartening. Right after George Floyd's murder, I saw a sign in our neighborhood that said, silence is racism. I thought about that for several days. I was being silent, but I also didn't know what to say. Around the same time, a friend of mine was asked what I was going to say to communicators as the leader of one of the industry's largest brands. I didn't know how to answer him. I'm still not entirely confident in what to say or how to say it. I'm sad and angry and nervous and scared. The shops and restaurants in a two-mile radius around us are boarded up and will continue to stay that way. For more than a week, the helicopters and sirens have drowned out the sounds of spring and birds chirping, kids playing, and squirrels doing whatever those vermin do. It's scary. It's a lot to take in and it's hard to understand. And I fully realize that I say that from a place of privilege, but I'm learning. I am learning that not being a racist is not the same as being anti-racist. I'm watching and listening and asking really hard questions and working hard to keep an open mind to hear the answers. I've learned what happens when you stand up to racism, how uncomfortable it is and how it can affect more than just a relationship, but your livelihood too. I am no longer silent. To my friend who asked what I was going to say to the industry, my answer is that we're going to traverse this together. I will get some things right and some completely wrong. And I have to be okay with that because I can't be silent and I want to personally be anti-racist and lead an organization that is too. Back to the story of me being fired. Imagine my surprise when my client called me early Monday morning because he was so angry about the email I had written for him. He berated me for using phrases such as country under siege and systemic racism. He was furious that I had written an email that made it look like, and I quote here, he was, quote, pandering to a minority, end quote. As he continued to yell at me, my heart sank. In those three minutes of being berated, I learned something about him. I had no idea until that moment, he is a racist. When he texted me on Sunday night asking me to write something for his customers, I very wrongly assumed he wanted to show his support to black lives. I was wrong. I got the messaging completely wrong. And this realization settled over me. And as this realization settled over me, I lost my temper. I forgot my professionalism. My decorum went out the window. I called him out for his racism and, and I told him I was devastated. He isn't who I thought he was. There might have been some bad words thrown in there for good measure. All I could see was red. In the middle of my diatribe, he interrupted me and fired me. I shot back, you can't fire me, I quit. I'm very mature when I'm angry. He hung up on me and that was that. I could have handled it with more grace for sure. I said some things I now regret even though they were true. This is a hard story to tell because I'm in a position to be able to say the things I did and also to be able to be fired by a client. Yes, it hurts our revenue, and it totally sucks to now be down 80% in revenue since March 22nd, but I have control over who we work with, and I recognize not all of you are in the same position. In the Spin Sucks community, had a several days long conversation about how we handle messaging and communications around everything that is going on around us. 
We've talked about how our role as marketers and communicators is to ensure that no one else is ignored or worse. That no one is ignored or worse. We must be steadfast in our commitment to diversity, equality, and inclusion. Our actions must be deliberate. A member said, I don't need to know how my toilet paper company is standing up to inequality, but I do want to know the stance of almost every other company I do business with. If you work for a consumer packaged goods company, it's probably less important for the toothpaste brand to make a statement, but perhaps more important for the parent company to do so. With another client, we're working through some of his messaging. There are three things I've asked their leadership team to think about as we determine how the company will not just make a statement, but prove it with their actions. Number one, are we willing to lose a customer or detract prospects from hiring us if we take a public stance on social injustices? Number two, what kind of policy do we want to have in place for employee activists? And number three, how will we react if an employee is arrested or a customer leaves because of something they've done or said as it relates to social injustice? These are challenging questions to answer. And I know not everyone will handle it the same way I would want for my business, but just like we put social media policies in place, it's important to do the same for social injustice and employee activism. Hopefully, the answers reflect the values of your organization. If they do not, you better get there fast. There is a crisis waiting to happen if you say you stand for diversity, equality, and inclusion on your website, and your website is full of white men. Don't just say it, live it. It sucks to lose a client during these trying times, even though I know we're much better off without the racist client. I'm privileged enough to be able to quit at the same time as being fired. And I'm privileged enough to be able to go for a run and not be suspected of doing something bad. I can be pulled over by police and cry my way out of a ticket. Don't think I haven't done that more than once, even when I was driving 100 miles per hour and, and fully deserved to be pulled out of my car and thrown against the hood. I can go bird watching and not have the cops called on me. My mom always told my siblings and me to remember who we are and what we stand for. I will not be silent. I stand for diversity, equality, and inclusion. I stand for black lives. There you go. I thought it speaks for itself. It was really interesting and a good read. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 